0: Thank you, Al, for reading our text this morning. The title of our message is The Flood and Faith, as Al just read Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, all the way through 7, verse 24. Well, Noah's Ark, you just heard the story. It's really a story in one sense that, well, needs little or no introduction. Or does it? Maybe you grew up in children's ministry in the church and undoubtedly you read the story of Noah's Ark. Maybe you even remember the pictures, the uh, cartoonish-like kiddish pictures of the ark with a rainbow arcing overhead with all the little fuzzy animals cramped inside. And of course, you always had to have that obligatory giraffe with its neck protruding out of the roof of the ark, right? Maybe that's you. But maybe you didn't grow with Noah's Ark as a story. Maybe you never had the Noah's Ark bedspread or wallpaper in your room. Maybe you didn't grow up in the church. Nonetheless, I venture to say you are familiar with this story that was just read. You have heard references to it. You've heard it. Maybe you're not quite sure if all the details are totally true, but you know, you said it's a good story for kids. It's a cute story, nonetheless. Well, if that's you this morning, I want to introduce to you or reintroduce to you this morning the story of Noah's Ark. Could it be that we have become just a little too familiar with this story? To quote one commentator, Leland Reichand, the story of the Ark and the flood is a cosmic horror story. It's a horror story of apocalyptic proportions that, pardon the pun, drowns out any other flood story that you've heard or maybe you've even gone through in your life. It drowns it out in severity, in scope, yes, in death. So there's really a a warning as we begin here. It's easy to try to blunt or to play down the story that you just heard. But, church, to do that is to try to domesticate God. It is to try to make him safer than he really is. I hope you understand, or you will, this is a story of God's severe judgment, but it's also a story of God's severe mercy as well. And it's a story which calls us to a radical faith in a fearsome, and yes, in a faithful God. So church, take note, take heed this morning. To put it simply up on the screen for you, the main point, God's judgment calls for a radical faith in our faithful God. With that, let's pray. Well, Lord, I ask this morning that You would, by your word and by your spirit, give us a sanctified imagination as we go through this story, this true story. A story that's not based on a fable, but is fact. So Lord, open our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear. And lead us this morning to faith in Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, up to this point, if you've been with us in our series in the book of Genesis called Beginnings, we've been cruising at a pretty good clip, a pretty fast pace. I'm not sure if you noticed, but when we get to chapter 6, our text today, things begin to slow way down. In fact, Genesis 6 through 9 Those four chapters cover one single year of the life of Noah. Believe it or not, his 600th year. And the days are conspicuously numbered and dated. See, I believe what God is doing here, he wants to slow us down a little bit, doesn't he? Take note. But I also believe he's saying as well, this story it's real. It really happened. This story is one to be pondered. And there is a reverent fear to be cultivated as well in our hearts. And it begins with point number one, a severe judgment. God is about to wipe out all of his creation, all which he has created. You see, God's not just having a bad day in our story this morning. This isn't just a God who's a little, you know, a little passionate, a little hot-tempered. And this is just suddenly an outburst of anger. Okay, I've had enough. Gone with you, creation. That's not the God whom we're speaking of this morning. Maybe that was your father. Maybe that was you. That's not God. That's not what is happening here, church. Now this is a holy God a holy God. and I believe that verse 13 captures it well in the ESV when he says, I have determined to make an end of all the flesh. In other words, it is God's resolve based on his holy and righteous character that he is about to blot out wicked mankind and the corruption they have sown on the earth. It's hard to swallow, isn't it? Well, if it is, and I join you with that at times, perhaps may I propose that it's because we underestimate our own sin against a holy God, our rebellion against him. Church, this is serious, and God as a holy God is about to punish sin according to his righteous and perfect character. What he has created, he is about to destroy. God is about To begin again. But in doing so, God knows how to distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. And so we have a stark contrast we see in these first three verses. It's that of the righteous and blameless Noah, vis-a-vis the rest of the earth, which was corrupt and filled with violence. But to say that Noah is blameless does not mean that he's perfect, all right? We'll find that out. He's a sinner just like you and I in a few verses, excuse me, in a few chapters to come. You see, something else is happening in this text. Do you recall Genesis chapter three? You don't have to go there, but I just want to refresh our memory. Genesis chapter three is when sin entered the world. It's where we see the fall of man. And in that chapter, God curses the serpent who is Satan. And he declares a holy war. Between whom? Between the offspring of Eve, the woman, and the offspring of the serpent, Satan. Noah, in our text this morning, this is important, comes from the offspring of Eve through the line of Adam and Eve's third mentioned child, Seth. Now, if you've read previously chapter 5 of Genesis, there's a long genealogy a lot of funny names, and a lot of really old people. What's that about? It's about this, to prove that Noah came from the line of Seth. He is part of the righteous seed that God is to bless. And from that seed of Noah, from his line, from his genealogy, would come the serpent slayer, Jesus Christ, the Savior. That is what is happening here. And in this cataclysmic flood, God has purpose to wipe out the offspring of the serpent and all those who follow him. And to start again with a second Adam. Who's that second Adam? It's Noah right here. Part of the righteous seed which God had promised. You see here in Genesis 6, God is going to war and he's drawing up the battle lines and the plans right here. So what does God tell Noah to do? He tells Noah, catch this, to build a battleship. Oh, you thought it was just an ark, didn't you? Yeah, no, a battleship, okay? Now what do I want you to do is sometimes we have a hard time conceiving what this battleship really looked like. And we, like I mentioned earlier, we can kind of make it a little cartoonish in our own mind. So when I put up on the screen a replica of Noah's Ark that was built at uh, the Ark Encounter. I think it was built, finished last year near Cincinnati, Ohio. Here is a picture, a real life replica of what that Ark may have looked like according to the dimensions in the Bible. What are those dimensions? 450 feet long. For guys who like sports, football, that's about one and a half football fields long, okay? That helps me at least. 75 feet wide and three stories tall. There we go. Let's look at the next picture as well. Just get an idea. And that's a beast, isn't it? Church, that's a battleship, okay? This is what Noah was commanded to build. A boat larger than any that had ever been constructed at its time in history. With seaworthy proportions of an ancient battleship. There you go. Already mentioned the dimensions. Over one and a half football fields long. But this wasn't to be a battleship, okay? With guns and armaments. No, it wasn't that type of war. It was a spiritual war. Not to be fought with a flood of bullets, but literally with a flood of water. Here again, Genesis 6, verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So Noah was commanded to build a battleship smothered in pitch with food to be able to sustain him and his family and the other animals as they absorbed the wrath of God being poured out in judgment upon the earth. And that outpouring was to come from water above as well as water from below as well. Let me read Genesis 7 again, verses 11 and 12. Pick up in verse 11. We read, On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Church, what is being described here is violent and it is horrific. The closest I can come, at least in my life, is to think of a couple scenes I had opportunity to photograph about what this might have been like, to have been there and to have countered this outpouring of God's wrath through water. The first one I put up is a picture that I captured off I-75 a few years back. I think it was actually one of my children. We were driving over the overpass and we saw the scene. This is not a tornado. This is, you know, you live in South Florida, an afternoon thunderstorm. Church, that is what is being described, I believe, here. Water from above. When it says the windows of the heavens were open, but it just wasn't on one location. This was happening across the earth. But that's not all that was happening. At the same time, there was water. Springing forth, bursting forth from the ground as well. It made me think of a vacation that uh, our family did a few years ago in Yellowstone National Park of the geysers that we saw there. There were some geysers that would spout water intermittently over a period of a half hour or hour. But we saw this one geyser called the morning geyser and it continually was erupting and spewing water from the earth. Got a picture of it for you right here. This also was what was happening on that day. But it wasn't contained to just Yellowstone Park as a little natural phenomenon where we build boardwalks and look at it and admire it and take photos. It was happening across the landscape. So what was happening was God was collapsing the space, the expanse of land and sky from the waters above and the waters below. It was as if God was returning the earth to its primordial watery state that we find back in Genesis 1. He is collapsing the sky, so to speak, and he's bringing forth his flood of judgment upon the people. I hope we get the picture. What is being described is not some earth-sized bathtub gently filling up with a little ark, gently floating on top. The earth was erupting like a geyser and the sky was falling continuously and concurrently for 40 days and 40 nights. Who would have believed it? Who would have believed it? Well, church Noah did. And so much his family who entered the ark with him. For Noah believed God, and in doing so, he demonstrated a reverent fear of God and a radical faith in God. And I believe in doing so also left us an example to emulate as well. And that leads to point two, a radical faith. I've been thinking about this point a lot. I said this last week, but it's been the last two weeks since we had to cancel the service last Sunday. Some of you know that a couple of weeks ago, Al... David Bush and myself, we pulled away for our annual planning retreat. We asked a lot of questions, but this is really the question that grabbed us and animated us. Where do we want to see this church in five years? Let's dream. And we came up with many answers. We're going to share some of those answers in the days and weeks to come. But I want you to hear the one answer that we all agreed with right away. And it's this. We want to be a church starting with its pastors who possess a radical faith. Now, when I say radical, I just don't mean radical as in we want to be different. I just want to be different than the rest. That's not radical that I'm talking about. I'm talking about a radical faith which was willing to follow our God and our Savior wherever he goes and whatever the cost. Church, if you do that, you will be radical. Not because you're trying to be radical, because you're following our radical God. You're listening to his voice and you are obeying, you are following, no matter what the implications or consequence, you're following your Lord because you have counted the cost of discipleship and you are a follower of Christ. I'm saying, Lord, I want to be more like that. I want us to be more like that each and every day. Well, church, I believe that Noah possessed that radical faith. How was that faith expressed? Well, chapter six ends with these words. We already read them. Chapter six, verse 22. Noah did this. He did all, all that God commanded him. Then chapter seven, verse five, picks up the same refrain. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. What did Noah do? He lived by faith, not by sight. And he listened to God rather than the weatherman. And he built an ark. Have you ever considered what it would take to build an ark that we saw up there on the screen? To clear the land, to cut down the timber, to transport it to your construction site with only a few helpers? Have you ever considered how long it would take to assemble an ark out of wood planks before there were even iron nails? That technology did not come till later. Well, if I'm interpreting Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 correctly, let me tell you how many years it took Noah. You ready? 120 years. Would I get that? Well, Genesis 6, 4 says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That is, before God would bring the flood and wipe out mankind. If this is correct, Noah labored on this ark from age 480 to age six hundred he dedicated himself to building an ark that no one thought they even needed except he and his family. Listen, I can't even imagine building an ark at age 60, okay? Age 600? You gotta be kidding. But as hard as that seems, I don't think that was the hardest part. I think the hardest part was the ridicule, the derision, the mocking, the opposition that he must have encountered building this ark in all those sunny days for 120 years. Can you imagine? I mean, just just join with me in a little sanctified imagination, you know? Noah's uh, quote-unquote friends walking by. Hey, Noah! You see the forecast today? Sunny, 0% chance of worldwide flooding, just like it's been since the creation of time. Hey, Noah, how's that wooden floating coffin? I mean, ark coming along anyway, huh? Got some work to do. Think about it. But for Noah, this was not a joking matter. Nor does scripture give any indication that Noah was some angry, conflicted, Mentally unstable man, like played by Russell Crowe in the Hollywood adaptation of this very story called Noah. Don't bother seeing it, okay? That's not the Noah described here. This was a man, quote, who walked with God, like Enoch, like Adam E. before the sin, forefall. This was a man who pleased God, So much so that he built an ark. He built an ark with no rudder, no oars, no navigational equipment. He built an ark in which he was fully and completely dependent upon the mercy of God. And he trusted God with his own life, but not just his life, that of his own family as well. And they followed him. They followed him right into the ark, an ark that had no windows and only God as its GPS. Think about it. He was a man who could look at his greatest critic, at his greatest naysayer and say like Joshua does. These words, chapter 24, verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, I wonder when Joshua said those words if he wasn't thinking of Noah. You understand that this book was written by Moses, human author, to Joshua and his generation for their going into the promised land. Just can't help but think was he not thinking of Noah? Church, it's no wonder that Noah's name is listed in what is often called the Hall of Fame of Faith, found in the book of Hebrews, the New Testament, chapter 11. I want to read what it says about Noah from verse 7 of Hebrews 11. We'll put it up on the screen for you. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark, For the saving of his household. By this. By this. He condemned the world. And became an heir. Of the righteousness. That comes by faith. Catch that. How did did Noah condemn the world? It wasn't just by being blameless. And refraining from evil. It was also by doing good by building an ark that God would use for the salvation of his family and creation as well. And what happened? The world saw his faith worked out in a radical obedience. And they knew Noah was dead serious about the coming flood of God's judgment. But those around him couldn't avoid this fact as well that they too would be dead meat if he was correct. As such, they were condemned in their sin and unbelief. I want to read a quote from uh, Nancy Gantz. I love her commentary for children. I get a lot out of it. I read it as well. It says this, Noah built the ark in the midst of a wicked generation while God patiently waited The banging of Noah's hammer was like the tolling of a bell warning the world of the coming disaster. Every time it struck, it rang out the alarm. Repent! Repent! The banging of Noah's hammer was like a ticking of a clock telling the people that the day of judgment drew closer, closer, closer. Time. Was running out. Now God is not calling us. Is he? To build. A huge big wooden battleship. But does your life. Does your work. How you invest your time. During the day. During the evening. And the weekends. How you invest your money, how you spend your money, does any of that give an unbeliever any reason for pause? To hear the clock ticking and to consider God in the day of reckoning. See, Noah's life did. And we have every reason to believe that Noah not only demonstrated his faith in his work with a hammer, but also by the words of his mouth as well. We read in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. It says that Noah was, quote, a herald, a preacher of righteousness. He was a prophet used by God. And we also read in Hebrews 11, 7, he was an heir of righteousness. Church Noah believed God and his word. And that belief that he had was displayed in his work as well as his speech. And thus Noah was saved the same way you and I are saved, by grace, through faith. Now it's true, Noah did not know of Jesus per se. He knew of the righteous seed to come but he believed God. He believed God's covenant promises that he would be spared from such a severe judgment as part of God's righteous remnant and seed. He trusted in a faithful God and he banked his life on it. And that leads to the final point, point three, a faithful God, a faithful God. We read in Genesis chapter six, verses 18 and 19, but I will establish my covenant with you And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living creature, excuse me, thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Catch that word covenant? It's the first use of the Hebrew word for covenant in Genesis. But the vocabulary here suggests that God was not making a new covenant with Noah, But indeed, he was confirming it. In other words, in saving Noah, God was being faithful to his promise to spare and to bring salvation through the righteous seed of Eve. And he was going to do that by using Noah. So what does God do? He asked Noah to build an ark and bring the animals to Noah. You find that a little curious? Noah doesn't go out searching for the animals. Noah does not go out setting traps for the animals. No, God brings the animals to Noah. Here's a really cool thing to think about. Just as God brought the animals to Adam to name, so here he brings the animals to the second Adam, Noah, to save. Hope it's clear. Who's in control here? Oh, it's God. From beginning to end. And then comes one of the most sobering and yet reassuring verses in the whole narrative. Chapter seven, verse 16. Take a look at it. And those that entered, that is the ark, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut them in. God brought them into the ark and he locked the door. Friends, when God closes the door, he shuts you in. There's no need to check the locks, okay? You're safe. Oh, you are safe. Oh, the waves pounded. The boat rocked, but it absorbed the judgment and the fearsome wrath of God. And those all those, every living creature in that ark was safe. Four times in the last six verses, we are told that the waters, this word is used, prevailed. The waters prevailed. What are we hearing here? We're hearing battle imagery, okay? That's what we're hearing. We're hearing triumphal language. God's floodwaters accomplished its purposes and wiped out the evil seed of the serpent and the corrupted earth. But, but, the waters did not prevail against righteous Noah and those inside. You understand, right? The water did not prevail, not because Noah built the perfect ark, okay? You saw the picture up there? Believe me, it wasn't that finely hewn and sanded, okay? <laughs> there were gaps and holes in that ark, no doubt, okay? No, the waters did not prevail against Noah, not because he lived the perfect life, because he was the perfect parent, because he was the perfect witness to the watching world. No. The waters did not prevail against Noah and his family and all those in the ark, because of God's grace and mercy. Oh church. And so we exhale, and we read the final verse verse 24. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. Church, a day of judgment is coming. And only those who are shut in the ark of Christ will be saved. For it is Christ who is the ark of our salvation. It is he who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf for our sin, for our wickedness. It was he who was beaten, battered, bruised, and crushed for our iniquity, for our sins, that we may be saved on the dreadful day of destruction. That day is coming. The earth will be purged, but when it's purged next, it won't be of water, but of fire, because the Lord Jesus is indeed returning. And you know what? People did not believe this in Noah's day, that God's judgment was coming. And many will not believe on that day when it happens again. Do you remember the images of that tsunami in Southeast Asia? Day after Christmas, 2004, when people were lounging at the pole on the beach, workers were in the field. And the next moment they were swept away by the tsunami. They never knew it was coming. Bam! Gone. So is the day when Christ returns. I'm not trying to understand you. scary. I'm trying to apply scripture here. Look, at Matthew 24, we'll put it on the screen, verse 37 through 40. Hear these sobering and chilling words. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man, who is Christ. Friends, we have been warned. If you have not taken refuge, Jesus Christ, the ark, today's the day. Oh, please, don't assume there will be a tomorrow. Don't listen to the cultural prognosticators. Don't listen to the weatherman. Listen to the one who created the weather, the wind and the waves. For it's only those who repent of their sin, who place their saving faith in Christ the ark, who will be saved from God's severe and everlasting punishment. i do it today. I think most of us here, though, have placed our saving faith in Christ. But there's a call for us as well at church. It's a call to a radical faith in Christ and a radical witness at that. Remember the quote from Nancy Gantz? I'll say it again, part of it. Quote, the banging of Noah's hammer was like the tolling of a bell warning the world of the coming disaster. Let me ask a couple questions. Does your life and work ring out that your trust and that your hope is in Christ alone and not in this world? Is it apparent by your life and by your speech that you are not listening to those everyone else is listening to? the conversations you have in your head, the things you post on social media. It is clear that you are listening to a different voice. You, your ear is tuned to something, i.e. someone different. You're tuned into God's word and his promises and you're living and banking your life on it. Oh, church, we need Noah's. We need prophetic, prophetic voices and lives that speak up and stand out. Those who are one to pick up the hammer, so to speak. Not, not to bludgeon people with the gospel, but to say, I will be counted with Christ and demonstrated in work, in deed, as well as in declaration. Oh, church, may it be. May we be about building our lives and hopes on the gospel, that the watching world may see that we are all in. Why? Because we're hanging. We're hanging all our hopes. We're hanging all our dreams on Jesus. It's everything or it's bust. (laughs) You get it? It's everything. And the world sees. May the world know where our hope lies. Church, may God give me, may God give you such radical faith. May he give every member and every new member that we're about to introduce that same faith, that we could be a church that possesses a radical faith like Noah, willing to follow Christ wherever he leads for his glory and for the witness of the watching world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, when I think about it, what we're really asking for is that we'd be be fools for Christ. That which the world would say would be fools. May we be those who are to be pitied more than anyone else if what we believe and how we lived our life is not true. Oh, Lord. But what we believe is true. Oh, For those who doubt, help us to believe and to live a life of radical faith depending upon your mercy and living for your glory, we pray. Amen, amen.